Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. Greetings and welcome to a special Christmas edition of the Diffusion Science Radio Show, the international science radio show coming to you out of Sydney, Australia, over to SCR or on the podcast. My name is Mark West and this week we're going to be talking about reindeers, Santa putting his house up for auction on the North Pole, geeky science music festivals and reflecting on the year that was 2008. But first up, here's the news with me. As it's coming up to Christmas, I thought we might look at a few sciencey Christmassy facts. And the first topic we're going to look at are reindeers, or Rangifer tarandus. Now, reindeers are a large deer adapted for Arctic conditions, and they live in huge herds. They're now greatly reduced in numbers thanks to hunting, although they're not threatened, and most herds are domesticated. Both males and females have antlers, and they can live up to about 13 years, although on average they live about four and a half years. They stand about 1 metre to 1.3 metres at the shoulder, and in summer have a shaggy brown coat, and in winter a grey coat. One interesting thing about them is the tendons in their feet make a clicking noise when they walk. They were once found throughout northern latitudes, but after extensive hunting, they're only now found in Alaska, Canada, Scandinavia, and Russia. In Scandinavia, I actually ate reindeer, and I swear to you, it's the nicest meat that I have ever had in my life. Their diet, as opposed to mine, is vegetarian and includes lichens and twigs. The size of their herds range between 10 and 1,000, although they can form large herds up to as many as 200,000. They have poor eyesight and locate food using their keen sense of smell. Some migrate to the Arctic plains for the summer. Reindeer mating occurs in October, when males fight to control small harems of 5 to 15 females. After a gestation of 227 to 229 days, a single calf is born, which is able to stand almost immediately and is a fast runner at one day old. Weaning begins at one month, but the youngster nurses occasionally until winter. Sexual maturity is reached at 29 to 41 days. The first artiodactyls, also called the even-toed ungulates, were present in the Eocene forests. The deer are probably descended from small animals like the Chevrotons, which browse and eat fallen fruit in forests. Like the Chevrotons, deer use fermentation in their gut to digest plant material more efficiently. This is called rumination. As the forests began to open up in the Oligocene, ancestors of deer grew larger and browsed on the vegetation or grazed on the new grass. They probably also formed herds for safety against predators. In the Miocene era, the first horned deer appeared, with the males having horns to fight rather than using their canine teeth. Although popularly believed, they do not have the ability to fly, and their noses do not glow red. Yes, and in other important Christmassy science news, Santa Claus has put his house up for sale. As you know, Santa lives at the North Pole. But due to climate change and the melting of the Arctic ice cap, Santa has put his house on the market 
for a comparative steal. Indeed, the global financial crisis has also hit hard at Santa, who's not able to pay his mortgage. Santa lives at the North Pole, which is the northernmost point on Earth, lying exactly opposite the South Pole. It defines 90 degrees north, as well as the direction of true north. And so at the North Pole, all directions point south. Indeed, its actual definition is it's the point in the northern hemisphere where the Earth's axis of rotation meets the Earth's surface. So if you drew a line between the North Pole and the South Pole, that's the line around which the Earth rotates. The North Pole is located in the middle of the Arctic Ocean. And even though the Russians have been there recently in a submarine, it's very difficult to get to. However, before long, it may not be so. Recently, scientists have predicted that the North Pole may become seasonally ice-free by 2050 due to Arctic shrinkage. Computer models predict that the sea ice area will continue to shrink in the future, although there is no consensus on when the Arctic Ocean might become completely ice-free in summer. Most people estimate somewhere between 2040 and 2100. Scientists have found no evidence that the Arctic has been seasonally ice-free over the last 700,000 years, although there were probably warmer periods. So if the Arctic ice cap becomes ice-free, it will be the first time in around 700,000 years. 2007 saw a record low in summer sea ice, and in 2008 it was the second lowest ever observed. All this global warming and ice shrinking has added to the urgency of several nations' Arctic territorial claims. The idea behind this is they want to control new shipping lanes and resource development in the area. Danish Foreign Minister Pierre Stig Muller and Greenland's Premier Hans Enoksen invited foreign ministers from Canada, Norway, Russia and the United States to Ulisat in Greenland for a summit in May 2008 in order to discuss the borders in the changing Arctic region. It was only last year, 2007, that Russia sent a submarine to the North Pole in a strong act whose intention was to show ownership of the area. This week on the show, we're talking to Hayley Birch, the organiser of the Geek Pop Festival. Yes, you heard right, Geek Pop. Geek Pop is the world's only sci-pop festival, a free online music event featuring songs about science. The festival brings together science-inspired artists from around the globe in a gleeful celebration of geek culture. In 2009, Geek Pop will take place between the 6th and 15th of March. I started by asking Haley, what exactly is a geek pop festival? When you look up in the sky at night, you see in a mystery. The physicists are in a twist by the vomit of the galaxies. It's a very heavy issue. It's an issue of gravity. It's a dark, dark matter. How would you describe the Geek Pop Festival and where did you get the idea for it? Oh gosh, well, I guess we just stumbled across a couple of people who were making sciencey, musicy stuff and we thought, well, this is quite a fun idea. Why don't we get a few people together to kind of play some songs about science and we can put it all on the internet. We don't need to have a festival site as such. And then as soon as we put the call out, 
you know, looking for people who write songs about science, loads of people got in touch with us and it just seemed sort of like we'd tapped into something. And then before we knew it, we had about 10 people who wanted to play at our festival. And, you know, we don't have a huge budget or anything. We work on a, <laughs> on a shoestring. I guess that's why we decided to do it online. But it kind of turns out that it's quite a good idea because you can get people from all around the world together and you can put it all onto a podcast and you can kind of create the illusion of a of a festival. And that's what we've done. And it And it kind of sounds quite fun. I think somebody described it uh, as cheesy, but... Um, <laughs> I think that's kind of what we were going for, so we quite we quite like it. Yeah. Was 2008 the first time you did it? Um, yeah, that's the first time we did it. And, yeah, we had, um, like I say, 10 artists in 2008. So in 2009, we're hoping to get about 15 to 20, and then we'll make a kind of festival highlights podcast. Um, and, but we'll have a bigger site this time, um, and we're hoping to do things like have a VIP room and a, a green room, so we're going to do interviews with some of our bands and that kind of thing. And maybe even some festival merchandise so you can get yourself a Geek Pop t-shirt. Oh, I love it. I like the, uh, <laughs> I like the festival um, stage names as well. You've got the, the Tesla tent. Yeah, that's where we're going to have some electronica kind of uh, stuff going on. Yeah, and we do have the reproductive stage as well, and we've just named our main stage for next year which is going to be the um tetrahedron stage <laughs> a re- reference to gladstonbury for australian listeners <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so you can see it's all quite geeky but it's it's beautifully cheesy i think um it, it's it's being run as part of science week next year is that right um yeah well we're actually a registered um national science and engineering week event but actually the festival obviously because it's online it's going to be online for the whole year and actually you can still go back and look at geek pop 08 now um and that's kind of the beauty of it is that you know it's going to be around for quite a long time and you can just keep listening again and again you don't have to actually be there i just listened to geek pop 08 and i think my favorites were the dinosaur extinction song and um the amateur transplant singing the anesthetist's hymn which i thought was quite cute yeah, no, the anaesthetist home is brilliant. And actually, we've got amateur transplants back again um, in 09. So we'll have to see what they come up with next time. Yeah, that's one of my favorites too. But I also like um, Dark Matter by Johnny Bulliner. That's yep. a really good one. And we also have a song um, about binary code by a guy called um, Logan Wright. Which is quite <laughs> good. As a virtual festival, how does, it, how does it work? What's the best way to interact with Geek Pop when it's running in March next year? Well, there's two ways you, you can experience Geek Pop. Um, <laughs> the first one is uh, you can just download the podcast. So we're going we're gonna to make a festival podcast, and it'll be a similar thing to last year where we kind of put all the songs together onto one podcast and we kind of create this festival vibe by having some crowd noise and we do some little interviews in between the songs and that kind of thing. Um, so it really sounds like a festival. Um, and then the other one is you can just go to the website, which is at geekpop.co.uk, and by the time it's, it's National Science and Engineering Week, that will all be transformed into a proper festival site, so you'll be able to go to each stage and you'll be able to look at the lineup and then click on the band, um, see a biography of them, read the lyrics, um, and listen to the song. Is it too late for artists who want to join in for next year? 
Uh, no, not at all. And in fact, we are really hoping to get more international bands. So if anybody in Australia would like to um, get in touch and write some songs about science, we'd be delighted. So if anyone wants to send an email, it's crew at geekbox.co.uk. We'd love to hear from anyone who makes <laughs> scientific music. It could be the start of a, a brilliant career. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there are a number of, uh, on your website, you list some of the benefits, some of the eco benefits of virtual festivals. I think one of the major benefits is you, you won't have to deal with any prima donna bands or have to get distilled <laughs> water from the French Alps or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, we don't have any uh, litter on our, on our site. No uh, plastic or, you know, discarded flyers, that kind of thing. We don't print tickets. So, yeah, we we feel we have a pretty eco-friendly festival. It's true, no, no uh, international air flights to England? Exactly. I mean, everybody can just take part from the comfort of their own homes. Do you have any particularly favourite science songs that you like? Well, I mean, I'm, obviously I'm pretty fond of the ones that geek pop. Um, <laughs> everything by the Chemical Brothers. Yes. That's got to be one of my favourites, really, I think. And what, what do you think might be next? Any uh, plans for a real-life festival? people that are really interested in it and I think when people first hear about the festival they think that it kind of does take place somewhere in real life and people have been very keen to get involved in that so you know if we could get some a little bit of funding so if anyone would like to give us some money <laughs> um, we would really yeah we would really like to do it in real life as well and obviously there's a lot of science festivals now in the UK and probably I don't know maybe in Australia as well but it would be really great to have a real-life festival site and just get a few bands together. I think some of the bands actually have been playing individual gigs at various science festivals, but it would be really good to get everyone together or even take it to another festival like Glastonbury or something on a smaller scale like that and get a few people together and, and do a few songs. It would be really fun. Who have you got lined up for this year, or is this a closely guarded secret? Well, we don't want to give too much away, but we do have a really great band called The Standards, they're based in London, and they're a kind of rock band. We do also have Being 747, who make uh, kind of rock opera music. Um, oh, and we have a few of the bands from last year, again, um, Professor Science, Let's Tea Party, Amateur Transplants. And we're looking for some more, kind of, more of an eclectic mix. So we're hoping to maybe get some, you know, jazz and... Um, punk, that kind of thing. We we really want people to send us stuff that is going to mix it up a bit. What are those ways of interacting with Geek Pop again this year? You've got the the website and a Facebook group. You've also got a newsletter. Yeah, we have a newsletter. So um, if you want to register with us, you can send an email to news at geekpop.co.uk um, and we'll send you a kind of little update maybe once a month. It's not particularly regular, <laughs> um, but... Yeah, we'll send a little update on what's going on with the gig, who's playing, um, I don't know, inside information. And sometimes we kind of stick some geeky science jokes on the end of it. So, uh, yeah, we have a few people signed up to that now. It'll be good to get more. I should ask about Null Hypothesis. Is this run, is this um, run under the banner of Null Hypothesis? Well, it's run in collaboration with Null Hypothesis. We're kind of doing it more as a standalone event this year. Um, so... I used to work as the editor for Null Hypothesis, and now I'm kind of a freelance science writer. And I'm kind of collaborating with a couple of other sort of freelance science communicators 
to put this together. But um, Null Hypothesis will be kind of distributing it and marketing it a little bit. So, yeah, we're doing it in partnership with them and um, also the BA, which is the British Association for the Advancement of Science in the UK. And we're just, yeah, we're kind of looking for other partners at the moment, possibly people that would be willing to give us some money in exchange for us putting their logo (laughs) all over it and sending it out all over the world. I think you had comments from like Nature magazine and The Guardian, all sorts of places last year. Yeah, we did. We managed to get, you know, a little interview on the Guardian Guardian Science Weekly podcast. Yeah, and I think Nature podcast played a little bit of it in their podcast as well. So, yeah, we've had interest from a lot of people. Um, so anyone who was going to be associated with it would get some good coverage, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, just we, we just really want somebody to give us some money so that we don't have to work on a shoestring anymore. <laughs> I'm excited for you because it's a nice idea. Yeah, I just really hope that we have the time to do it properly this year because I kind of felt like last year, you know, there was so much we could have done um, and now it's going to be really nice to try and get all the kind of biographies and so people can find out more about the bands. And I think if people get find out more about the bands, then they're going to be more inclined to go and see what else they do and, and maybe find out more about, you know, the science that they're singing about and that kind of thing. And, yeah. it, and it's also really nice to have the, the mix between science and creativity. I'll subscribe to the blog uh, when I get home. Yeah, make sure to tell you know all your friends about it and everything. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I'll be telling lots of people on the podcast. Excellent. Stretched us to the limits of our understanding, and then it opened.
editor of ABC Science Online. You must have some insight into the science year that was 2008. What were your particular highlights? Yeah, look, it's a, an interesting year. I mean, climate change was, was, was ever-present, as, as it will be for the next couple of decades, I think. Um, the interesting thing with climate change is we're now starting to see a, a number of um, bodies of research that um, show that it's not as simple and clear-cut as we used to think. Um, there was a study from the CSIRO a few months back that uh, showed that the amount of black carbon in soils has been heavily underestimated and that we might uh, be overestimating the, the increases in, in carbon in the atmosphere. Um, and then there have also been um, you know, some studies looking at methane and how methane uh, which is which is much more potent greenhouse gas than CO2 uh, is is actually coming out at an increasing rate again. So you know those sorts of stories we're going to see more of. But I, I think one of the interesting things was that this year saw the year that that modern media or the mainstream media became experts in particle physics. It certainly was a an interesting uh, story. The uh, Large Hedron Collider, which was uh, switched on and then very quickly switched off in September. So how far did the LHC go? Were there any scientific results that came out of it? <laughs> In one word, nada. <laughs> not, not really. I mean, <clears throat> the interesting thing was that the media and, and the public at large were quite concerned um, back in September that the, the LHC would, was going to create all this mini black hole which was going to suck us all in and, and, and you know, the end of the universe as we, we know it. But most media reports missed the fact that that it was only a test back then that the beam was going to be switched on to go in one direction and then reverse to go in the other, that you weren't going to have two beams that eventually collided and that's where the science uh, was going to be done and, and that was going to happen many weeks in advance but unfortunately they, they had a problem with a short circuit in one of the magnets and it caused a, a helium leak and the thing's been shut down and I think it's going to cost an estimated $30 million to fix that short circuit. I certainly don't want that electrician coming to my place. Oh, it's small change compared to the, to the 780 billion bailout, I think. <laughs> um, and quirky story of the year, x-rays and sticky tape? Yeah, this one uh, come from uh, California. Um, it's actually based on, on some research that, that occurred back in the Soviet Union, I think in the 1960s, where there was this uh, observation that there's some sort of rays or some high energy uh, coming out of sticky tape when you when you take it off the roll when you peel it off, and so these researchers at uh, University of California, I think in Los Angeles it was, um, decided to actually do some tests to see what happened, and they found that there was enough X-rays coming off a, a, a roll of sticky tape as you unrolled it that you could uh, take an X-ray of your finger. Now I don't know what that means come Christmas time when we're wrapping our presents, I think the suggestion would be to you know, have a good arm's length between you and the sticky tape. You don't want to sort of be wrapping them on your lap, do you? That's just what I was thinking. No unwrapping Christmas presents on your lap this Christmas. <laughs> and um, Australian science story, perhaps the, uh, the live birth story with the, the fossilised fish. Yeah, I was a bit disappointed you didn't hear about this over in the UK because it was it was a fairly significant story, particularly for, for Australian um, paleontologists, because um, this featured in Nature. 
I was uh, from the uni uh, Melbourne uh, Museum, Museum of Victoria, uh, where they uh, actually found in a fossil, uh, fossil of a fish, a fossilised embryo with the, uh, the whole umbilical cord and the placenta all attached. And, and, and there was a couple of um, reasons why this is outstanding. I mean, first of all, it's evidence of live birth in fish. Uh, quite quite a long time ago, and secondly, it it pushes live birth amongst animals back uh, several million years, back to I think about 230 million years, off the top of my head. So, I mean, it was a fairly fairly big story, and I think it's 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 one worth reflecting on for 2008. And the Queen got involved. Yeah, that was really weird. They had a they had a press conference in Adelaide to announce it um, at the I think it was the uh, Australian Science Media Centre, and they had a, a a live hookup with the the Royal Society in London, and the Queen delivered a message. I, I think there was some more to play in in that than just that story, but it was all it was all very um, tight embargoes and hush hush, even more so than your normal Nature paper. And any other highlights from the year in uh, in dot point four? Uh, 2008, the year of the genome, uh, we had the uh, woolly mammoth, the Neanderthal, the kangaroo, yeah. the platypus, um, the announcement of the uh, mapping of cocoa, which I know would be dear to many people's hearts. I think corn was another one, and the Tasmanian devil. So genome, um, very important. I think um, biofuel, the biofuel debate has is, is taken an interesting turn. You know, we all thought it was the, the panacea to get us through the... The, uh, the oil crisis and our dependence on, on fossil fuels, well now we're seeing you know, groups such as the, the uh, International Monetary Fund and, and the United Nations concerned that a lot of countries are actually buying up huge blocks of land in, in some of the uh, developing nations and, and instead of growing food, growing biofuels. So that's, that's another uh, uh, interesting one to come out for this year. And I think probably, the, uh, as I mentioned at the start, climate change, I think... Uh, you know, a number of stories are coming out in that, and even though this year, uh, just today, the, the World Meteorological Office uh, announcing that 2008 was a cooler year, it's still up in the top 10 of, uh, of, of, of years as far as temperature goes, and, and I think we're going to see uh, a few hotter ones over the next few years. Well, sadly, that's all we've got time for. My name is Mark West, and we're broadcast out of the luxurious studios of 2SCR in Sydney and across the world on our podcast. To find our podcast, to ask us any questions, or to simply ogle at our beautiful faces, go to www.diffusionradio.com. This week's edition of Diffusion was produced by myself, and big thanks to Hayley Birch and Darren Osborne for also appearing on this show. The song you heard in the middle of the program was Dark Matter by Johnny Berliner, and we're going out to the anaesthetist's hymn by the Amateur Transplants. Have yourselves a wonderful Merry Christmas, and we'll see you next week, because we don't take a break, on the Diffusion Science Radio Show. We write stuff, and if we have to intervene, we inject a bit of white stuff, and we offer to alter the light. Or the height of the bed Or fiddle with the radio Change the CD We even check the patients occasionally And if they move We turn up the vapour And then we go back To reading the paper Cos when the patients asleep We just sit and listen to the beef We just sit and listen to the Once upon a time I took pride in my job 
now I think it's time to depart Cause I just sit here every day And listen to blips of the heart (laughs) 